Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the grace that we have in him. Thank you that you did not leave us to ourselves, for then our striving would be losing, but that you fought for us, that Christ has won the battle over sin and death and has redeemed us and given us life now and life eternal. Father, help us to understand your grace more deeply today. Father, if there's any who do not know you, might today be the day they would trust you. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first, I need to say I'm guilty of false advertising. So quick confession. We said we we're going to be doing a sweep through church history. I, I have, I've just got issues. And sometimes I'm overly ambitious. And I think I can get a lot more done than I can really get done. And uh, I started looking at this. I was like, there's no way I can do everything I want to do today. So I'm going to have to break some of this out in a couple different weeks and stretch this out. But that'll be okay. We're going to eventually get to it. So if you've got your Bibles or your device, wherever you want to, uh, would you open up your Bible to 1 Timothy? We're going to continue this series called The Good Fight that we are in. And uh, this letter that a had an older, more experienced, weathered, war-torn older mentor, Paul, is writing to his young protege, Timothy, and he's kind of dropping wisdom like Yoda to young Skywalker. Um, but he's not teaching him about the force, he's teaching him about, the, about grace. And so we're gonna dive in here today. And last week we saw that uh, there, there's false teachers in this area that were leading people away from the gospel. And we saw how destructive it is whenever people... Uh, whenever false teachers lead people away from the life-saving, life-changing truth of the gospel, that that becomes destructive to the spiritual health of the people. And so Paul told Timothy, he said, guard that which has been entrusted to you. Protect it, watch over it. And that which I have taught you, teach that to faithful men who will teach others also so that the church continues to thrive and to flourish. And there's sort of this battle cry that's come down and this, these marching orders that come. And it comes from God the Father through Jesus who saved us to Paul, who was an apostle to start launch the church. And then it went to Timothy as a pastor, from pastor to the church members, to church members, to the sinners who needed to be saved. So they become church members who would then enter into the whole process that um, Paul had started to begin with. But there's, false, there, there's some controversy going on in this church, in this city, because some false teaching that has arisen. And so in verse seven, it says, desiring to be teachers of the law, but without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they are making such confident assertions. So Paul is gonna set up this, di- this dialogue um, with Timothy about what's going on. And he's gonna really break it down into two categories we're gonna look at today. One is law and one is grace. In law, he's gonna, he's gonna talk about law in verses eight through 11. And then in verses 12 through 17, we're gonna get to the other side, which is grace. And Paul knows that we need to see the difference between these two. So he's gonna lift them up and kind of contrast them. So you see the divergence between those two things. And uh, what we're gonna look at today is really the, just the, the beauty of grace. You know, it's, it's wonderful to know the words to amazing grace. It's 
far better to know the God of amazing grace. And that's where Paul is going to push us today. So let's read 1 Timothy. We're going to start in verse 8 and read down through verse 20. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed to me with faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, that they may, be turned, may, may learn not to blaspheme. So, light stuff to dive into today. Uh, you can see why I need a little bit of space and time and maybe another week to get through some of this. Uh, we're going to dive in though. Paul starts off in verse 8, he says, we know that. In verse 9, he says, we also know or understanding that. And part of what Paul started, begins there is he's saying, in contrast to the false teachers, we know within the community of faith, within the church, there is a truth that we've been handed down. And so we know this. Remember what he said in verse seven? These false teachers do not even understand the things they're, they're saying about themselves. Uh, Paul says, but we know and we understand. Notice he talks about the law in those first um, three verses we looked at. He says, the law is good if what? If one uses it properly. So what is the appropriate use of the law? That's the question that you should be asking as you read what it is he says. And Paul makes a, an interesting comment here. He says that the law is not for the just or the law is not for the righteous, which seems like kind of an odd thing, right? Like what's Paul trying to get at? Now, he's clearly not saying that there are people who are so righteous and so just that they don't need God's help. Because Paul elsewhere in Romans says, there is no one who is righteous. And just in case you missed it, he follows that with no, not one. I mean, no one gets a, gets a free pass on their own self-righteousness because all of us fall short of the glory of God, Paul says that we all sin and we all struggle. So Paul's not saying that there's a category of people to whom the, the law and, and God's help and God's instruction don't apply. What is it he's trying to get at? He's actually, when he says just, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about those who have been reckoned as righteous or reckoned as just because of their faith. And so those who have been set apart because of their beliefs are called just here. And so when we begin to think about that, it might seem strange that maybe he's giving Christians a free pass, but that's really not what's happening. See, the, the very definition of a Christian 
is to acknowledge that I'm a sinner in need of a savior named Christ who has come to save me. And so if you are a Christian, you've already acknowledged, man, I can't keep the law. I didn't keep the law. I broke the law, which is why I'm a sinner and which is why I needed a savior, which is why I trust in Christ, which is what makes me a Christian. And so there's a sense in which we don't need the law anymore because we've already accepted the reality of our lives that we, we cannot keep up, uh, that we cannot be just in and of ourselves. And that's why it says the law is not for the righteous, but ultimately for those who fall short, those who need to be instructed in terms of their own, uh, their own breaking of the law. So it says it is for the lawless and the disobedient, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane. So interesting connection here as you begin to think about this passage. And this is what oftentimes we call a vice list, meaning Paul is just going to give a list of vices or things that are, uh, that, that, that people that do that are wrong. And you notice that he actually personalized it here. He makes it more about their character than just the, the kind of individual violations they do. So he puts it more in these categories of people. And he's helping us understand that there's a personal nature to our sin. But it also connects very much to the Ten Commandments. And so it may not be a connection that's obvious at the get-go, but if you go back and look at the Ten Commandments, this vice list correlates directly to some of the Ten Commandments. In fact, uh, the Ten Commandments are broken down into two different categories. The first four commandments are sins against God, and then the last six are sins against our fellow man. And the vice list breaks down that way as well. And so the first grouping that Paul begins to deal with, really deal with sins against God. And he's trying to get us to understand where it is that we fall short. So he talks about lawmaker, lawbreakers and rebels. The lawbreakers are those who are outside the law. They don't think it applies to them and they push it away. Rebels are really kind of an attitude of, of insubordination, that there's actually an attitude of pushing back against the rule of God. Uh, then you get to ungodly and sinners. These are people who are blatantly wrong. They're arrogant in the rejection of God. Paul later is gonna say, uh, God didn't hold this against me because I was ignorant of what it is I was doing. And what he's talking about here is in the Old Testament law, there were kind of two categories of the way the law broke down. And there was willful disobedience of God where you knew what was wrong and you just kind of thumbed your nose at the Lord and said, I'm gonna do, do what I wanna do anyway. And then there was other people that, man, you're stepping across the line and you may not really realize it. And so there's a different category that's there. And Paul says, my, my sins, whenever I, before I was saved, were really of the first kind, that I didn't understand fully what I was doing. But these false teachers, these false teachers are people who have been in the church. They do know the truth. They do know what God's word said. They have been taught the things they need to teach and yet they have rejected it and walked away and rebelled against God. And so Paul says that puts them in a different category. That's what he says is referring to when he talks about the ungodly and sinners that are here. When he says unholy and profane, he's talking about things that are inappropriate to the worship of God, false, that are far from God. So that, those are sins that are all against God that really correlate to the first section of the Ten Commandments. Let's go down to the second section. Paul turns to sins against other people. You notice this one, sins, those who strike their mothers and fathers. Dude, like who does that, right? Um, but it was prevalent and it was something that, that, that happened. And so one of the things we're gonna see in this list is that really the, the 10 commandments were these broad categories, but there were other, and then elsewhere in the, in the Old Testament, those laws, the, the 10 commandments were expanded and described and they were broken down into a whole system of laws. And so whenever you had this general law of honor your father and mother, which is what the 10 commandments um, tell us to do, 
there were kind of breaking down under that, there were these other laws that said, here's the ways you have to honor them and here's things that dishonor them and that you're not to violate. And one of those would be to strike. And what Paul does in this list is he kind of picks the worst of all those categories and says, let me show you the worst in this area, but everything else is kind of understood to fall out underneath that as well. And so he says, do not strike your mother and father. He talks about murderers. He goes into another category and obviously one of the Ten Commandments, do not murder. Another of the Ten Commandments is do not commit adultery. And he breaks this down into, it kind of gives us two examples of this. He talks about that which is sexual, immoral, sexually immoral. And then he talks about homosexuality. And I, I want to talk a little bit about that one because of all the ones in this list, and that's the one that's going to jump off the page in our, in our day and in our time. That's the one that in our country has really kind of become a lightning rod and something that's, that's thrust out um, and constantly in front of us. In fact, this week I was looking on social media and I was flipping through my, my uh, Instagram feed and I got a commercial for a credit card and the, the entire approach of the credit card commercial really dealt with accepting of all views of sexuality. And I thought, well, that's interesting because I'm not sure what that has to do with credit, with purchasing, with anything else. But here's what you see in our world. There is a, a group of people named as marketers within a company and they have decided that their company can make more money if they appeal to a certain demographic, or not necessarily a certain demographic, but a certain value system in our world. And so they created a marketing campaign around that because they feel like that's going to further the cause of their company. Now, that's an interesting thing when you think about this business that has nothing to do with sexuality at all, but they're using that in order to leverage uh, influence within our world. And so I, I mentioned that because I think this is something that we all, we all, we all think about and we're all facing and we're all deal with. And yet you come to this list and um, when you look at the word that's here, um, that word means exactly what you think it means. And so that makes us very much in terms of our world uh, uh, kind of as an outsider. It makes us feel as though, and I'm not sure exactly where, how it is that I'm supposed to bring, uh, bring these two things together. These things that are being said out there and yet, when I look at the scripture, I see what it clearly says right here. So let me give you three things or three errors we could make when we come to this. I think the first error we could make as we look at uh, really what Paul is saying here is we could pretend like it's not there. Like the first error we could make is just to kind of skip over that. We could, path, we could, we could move in a different direction. Uh, I'll just tell you, one of the reasons why I like to preach through books of the Bible is it keeps me honest. Uh, because if I was preaching topically, I could skip a whole lot of stuff that'd be fun to skip sometimes. And I could focus on the stuff I really like to focus on and not do those things. But one of the reasons I like to preach through books of the Bible is it keeps us honest. We have to look at the whole counsel of what God has said and we have to really deal with those things. And so one of the things we, I think the errors we, we could make is we could skip over it and pretend like that, that isn't there. And yet that word is clearly um, there in this list. It's actually elsewhere as well. You can read in Romans 1 where Paul deals with this in addition to this. Secondly, I think the mistake we could make was to pretend that this was the only, the only li uh, thing listed in this list of vices. We could pretend like it's in bold and focus on it. And so uh, if one error is we could pretend like it's not there at all, we could also get fixated on it and pretend like it's the only list, the only sin mentioned that really matters and start pounding away and, and screaming about it and yelling about it and doing those things. Um, but that's not helpful either because that's not what Paul does. Paul lists it in a, in a list amongst others as an equal sin with the other sins. And so this is not one that, that is singled out in any, in any unique way. It's just one of the evidences of ways in which we could rebel against God. 
think the third error we could make is to pretend that any, of, any sin is beyond the grace of God. God's grace is big enough to cover any sin or any struggle that we have. And so we can rest, we can rest in that. And so we would never want to pretend that that's not the case. But here's what I realize about us. We have tension when we deal with this topic. One, because of where our world is, and sometimes we feel at odds with that. Two, we have tension with this because of the way the church has dealt with this issue oftentimes in the past and because of mistakes that the church has made, we feel timid and we're not sure exactly where to stand. And so we tend to just kind of step back and go, I just hope I don't have to deal with it, right? And yet it's here in this list and something that I think we do need to wrestle with. I wanna let you know, we do have a, a document in the back if you wanna know kind of an official kind of documented as far as the church. We do have one of those in the back that's available for you if you want to pick that up on your way out um, that just deals with singleness, marriage, kind of all that whole realm of um, life for us in, in our church. I hope that that's helpful for you. Uh, let me continue to move through as Paul looks at this list. The next one Paul talks about is slave, enslavers. Uh, this is really human trafficking. He's talking about those, uh, the 10 commandment that we're called to, uh, that's there is do not steal. And there actually was a problem of people stealing babies and turning them into their own slaves. And so that was very prevalent in that culture. And so one of the things Paul was, was calling to do is don't traffic in other humans. So slave trade is, is one of the things that he mentioned. Sli- liars and perjurers, uh, those who bear fal- false witness, they take an oath, they make a commitment, and they don't keep it. It's interesting when Paul um, comes through this list, the things he, he talks about, these are really not meant to be the only things that are there. They're meant to kind of be representative. That this, there's things that we struggle with, things that are there. And he fixates on some of the bigger ones, understanding that, man, if it applies to these things, it applies to everything else in that category as well. So then you notice where Paul goes, just in case you thought, well, maybe I skipped and I did okay on that list. He goes down after that and says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so my guess is if you're sending to show up in there, you don't have a major struggle there, um, you probably get covered in whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. You can probably assume you've got some struggles there with that broad category. So let's talk about this. Paul says, what is the proper use of the law? And so what is the proper use of the law? Really the, the, use, the proper use of the law is to raise the awareness of your sin. It's to point out the fact that there's a line that God has drawn and you clearly have stepped across that line, that you've missed the mark with your life, that you didn't always hit a bullseye in terms of your aim and the things that you're trying to do in your life. Romans 5 says, now the law came, that, uh, came in to increase the trespass, meaning that it raises the aware, our awareness of our trespasses. The, the, the law um, it doesn't really function to empower us for holy living. The law is external to us. It presses down upon us. It's meant to curb evil in the world by setting a boundary and a barrier and telling us these are the things we're not to do. But it's also intended to kind of help us get downwind of ourselves. And one of the best illustrations I heard of this was one of my mentors. And he said, the law is God kicking the cow patty of your life and letting the smell out. All right, it's a good Texas illustration or Oklahoma illustration, right? Uh, you know, if you, if, you go, if you ever have been out in a field where there's a bunch of cattle and there's cow patties that are there, they get a little crusty on the outside. And it kind of keeps the smell in a little bit. But if you happen to step in one or happen to kick one, it's like all that insane, all, the, all, that, all that heat comes out and you smell it. Uh, the law is God helping you kind of get downwind of yourself and go, oh, I don't smell as good as I thought I did. Have you ever had that, that scenario in your house where you walk into someone else's house and their dog really stinks? And then you go back to your house and you go, does our dog smell like that? And you just kind of wonder. 
the law is meant to help you go realize like, hey, I don't have it all together. I really have, I have areas of struggle. And so uh, that, that's the, the right use of the law, Paul says, is to curb evil and set boundaries for us, but also to reveal to us that we're sinners so that we would understand that we need a savior. And that's ultimately the, the call of the law. Then he goes on and he says that whatever is contrary though, he says to sound teaching the word. It's interesting, the word for sound teaching there, it's a medical term. It has to do with healthy. Whatever is connected to healthy teaching, we'd often think of healthy teaching as healthy, but he's saying that this is information, this is teaching, this is instruction, this is guidance that actually brings spiritual health to you and helps shape your life. And that's really the, the focus of what Paul wants us to understand is that healthy teaching equals healthy living. We aren't teaching just for the sake of being right. We don't teach in the church just for educational enlightenment. We don't teach in the church uh, kind of like a, a museum or an educational institution that's focused on knowledge for knowledge's sake. Doctrinal health changes lives. Doctrinal understanding grows us and produces, as we saw in verse five, a clean heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. And so doctrine actually, gospel behavior actually shapes, or I'm sorry, gospel belief actually shapes gospel behavior. It, it shapes who we are. And, and Paul says it this way in verse, uh, verse 11, whatever is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So he fixates it on the gospel. He says the, 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 the answer ultimately to the law, to the problem we have, is that we listen to sound doctrine, which is the gospel of, of the glory of God. So let's continue and move kind of in this next section. We shift from law, we get to grace. Grace is the, the stuff we're ready to get to. Here's what you need to understand. The, the gospel message of the church is not law. The gospel message is grace. See, law can get you lost, but grace can get you found. The law can show you that you're blind, but grace can give you sight. Grace has power to do something we can't do. And as a church, we wanna be foolish enough to trust the, the, the gospel and weak enough to, to lean on the power of God and, and to rest in him. So Paul is gonna now, in this kind of next verses, he really shares his personal redemption story. And this is, uh, it kind of becomes paradigmatic, paradigmatic for the entire church that, that he's an example, he says, of what salvation looks like. And Paul sets his own story up for us. And he says, he begins and says, I thank him who has given me strength. It's interesting, we oftentimes think of grace as merely forgiveness, don't we? And here what you see is Paul, Paul isn't talking about, uh, and grace certainly is forgiveness, but it's not only forgiveness. Grace is actually, it's, it's forgiveness plus more. And so what Paul says is, God's grace actually gave me strength. It made me stronger. And uh, man, I, what I love about what Paul says here is, this is not a puny grace. This is not a weak grace. It's not what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said was a cheap grace. This is a grace that, that changes our lives and that saves our lives. And so it's not merely forgiveness, it's, uh, it, it's a strong grace. Grace elected Paul. Grace called Paul. Grace redeemed Paul. Grace redirected Paul's life. Grace empowered Paul. Grace uh, uh, entrusted Paul with a mission. Verse 14, Paul says, God's grace overflowed to me. And the term that he uses there for God's grace overflowing to him is, and it just it means that God's grace wasn't just adequate. Like, hey, how good's God's grace? You're like, yeah, it's adequate. Kind of meets my need. 
it's not just adequate. In fact, it's not even abundant. The word he uses there is it's hyperabundant. He kind of takes two Greek words and he smashes them together and does this mashup of something and kind of invents this word that just says, God's grace is super abundant, meaning it's, it's, it's beyond abundant. I can't even describe it. It's overflowing to me and it continues to come down. And then he tells us what that really looks like in verse 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. When he says that, it's actually like a, he's trying to kind of put a spotlight on what he's about to say. He's saying, look, this is a huge thing. This is an important thing. You can count on this. You can bank this. Like if, you, if you're a betting man, like you take this and put all your chips on this thing. You can count on this. It's deserving of your total trust. It's a foundational truth. And he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the gospel, a gospel message in less than 10 words. And I love how simple it is. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I'm gonna break this down. In fact, would you just say that with me? Would you just say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? Man, kids, you're still awake. Good job. Um, hey, I wanna break, break this statement down kind of word by word because I think it's important. Christ, when he says Christ, he's talking about the anointed king who was sent to redeem. So Christ is the Messiah. He's the one who was sent by God, anointed by God as the king who comes to redeem his people. So Christ, um, it's Christ Jesus. Jesus is a human being. He was born of, uh, of the Virgin Mary. He came into this world and lived fully human, just like us. And so the, the anointed king was sent and he became a man. Um, and his name was Jesus. And he walked this earth just like you and I do. He came. The fact that Jesus came, he wasn't, he wasn't made. He wasn't created. He, he was begotten, uh, as the scripture says, and as, as theology will tell us. And we're going to talk more about that next week. But Christ existed before he was born. So Christ pre-existed the creation of the world. Christ has existed for all eternity. He is the eternal son of God. He existed and lived somewhere else. And then he came to earth and became one of us. Came into the world. The world in the scriptures, the the realm of humanity. It's the world of the blind and the lost and those who need God's help. And so Christ came into the world for what purpose? to save. To save is to deliver from darkness, to deliver from, from death and damnation. And so Christ came to save. Who did he come to save? Sinners, fallen mankind, who both sin individually, sins, but also possess a sin nature. And so sinners is, is more a category of people. To sin is to step across a line with a single uh, law that you've broken. But to be a sinner means that by your nature, you've rebelled against God and, and you're fallen, and so you need help. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin really is, it's a heart that's bent away from the Lord. And so we need a Savior, but we need a Savior who doesn't just give us a clean slate so we can start over. We don't just need a do-over life. We need a new life. We need a new nature. We need someone to empower us. We need a strong grace. So we're not just people who sometimes sin. We're sinners by nature that need to be saved. Friends, let me ask you a question. Do you remember when you realized that you were a sinner who needed a savior? Do you remember when that light bulb went off and you went, oh, I'm a sinner who has rebelled against God. I need a savior. 
If you can't identify that time, I think this is good news for you. Paul says, I'm an example to those who would believe on him for eternal life. Paul is telling his story saying, man, I was the worst of sinners. I was the foremost of sinners. Like the next phrase in this was Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I was the foremost. Paul says, I needed a savior. And he's saying, I am here as an example to you so that you might believe and you would also receive eternal life. See, if you died today, I think it's a good question to ask. Would you be confident that you'll spend eternity with the Lord? Would you be assured in your heart that your standing with him is right because you know his grace and you know that his grace has overflowed for you? It's interesting, Paul says God's grace overflowed. And there's a little prepositional phrase there. He says, for me. Have you ever personalized that and realized that God's grace overflowed for you? Can you say for me? I remember the day that I realized that God's grace overflowed for me personally. You know, when I talk to people about, about this, sometimes it's interesting that the conversations you get into, oftentimes people will say, when we begin this question, like, well, why do you think you, you should get to go to heaven? And, and the most common answer I get from people is, well, I'm a pretty good guy. And then he began to ask a question. He said, well, what do you, what do you mean you're a pretty good guy? Like, well, you know, I, uh, by and large, you know, I don't, do, I don't do really bad stuff. I generally try to treat people well. I, you know, I'm, I, try to, I try to do things uh, kind of on the up and up and my business and those kinds of things. But I feel like I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good girl. And you, you start pressing, well, how do you know if you're good enough? Well, you know, I mean, I keep the Ten Commandments or I, you know, I try to, I go to church. I do those things. I, I believe that there's a God. Um, friends, if, if, that, if those are your answers, I want you to know that's not what the gospel is that Paul's talking about. What Paul says is what we need to know, the foundational truth, the thing that we can go all in on, the, the, the thing that's, that's trustworthy and true in our lives is Christ Jesus, a savior, was sent by God in order to redeem you. He became a man. He lived a perfect life and died for us to pay the penalty for our sin. But Christ came to save sinners of whom we are all examples. That's the gospel. And if you're trusting anything else, the scriptures say you're not gone far enough. You have to actually name him. It's Jesus Christ. You have to actually you have to actually believe that that grace was intended for you. Not just in a general sense. Like Christ didn't die and it didn't just kind of ripple through the world generically. But you have, to, you have to take hold of that. John 1 says that those who believed in him, those who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. But you have to believe, you have to receive, you have to trust him. And you have to believe that his grace is truly for you. Maybe you've never fully considered it before. You know, I was talking with a friend one time about this and, and I'd ask her some of the similar questions, the things we're talking about here. And it was interesting because I said, when was it that you were sure? And she sat there and she looked away for a minute and she goes, I don't know, but I just realized I am. And in the midst of that, she had never really processed the question. But as I talked with her about the gospel, she just realized, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but I know right now, I believe what you're saying and I'm trusting it to be true. And friends, maybe that's where you are. Maybe today is the first day you realize, and I, 
I can't do it on my own. I can't trust my own works or my own, or, or some generic religion or some other idea, but I need to trust that the grace of Christ was for me, that he shed his blood for me, that, he, that I am the sinner that he came to save. And that changes everything, which is really what Paul's trying to get us to understand. Now, it's fascinating, Paul, we're not just talking about cold kind of adherence to doctrine. It really, it emits a heartfelt response and calls for a heartfelt response. And so what you see that, that, that Paul says is, uh, he starts off in verse 12 and he says, I thank God that I've been strengthened by his grace. And then he ends verse 17, he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. So he starts it with gratitude and he ends it with praise. And so it's not just this kind of cold thing, but if you understand that you're the sinner that God's grace overflows to, and you're the sinner that Christ Jesus came to save, it ought to emit a response. It ought to stir your hearts and your affection. Religion says, hey, look at what I've done, praise me. Grace says, look at what he did, praise God. And that's the, the response that we're meant to have. And Paul just kind of strings these descriptions of God. He's eternal. So he's different than all the other pagan gods that were in Ephesus. He was different than the emperor of Rome who set himself up as a God. He was, this God, our God is eternal. He's immortal, meaning that he, there's a divine quality that, that only belongs to God, that he's always existed. There's, he's invisible, meaning they, they had a materialistic view of gods in that world. He was invisible, meaning he was, he's bigger than kind of the, the idols and the things that they, that they had in that day. And he's the only God, meaning there is no other way. There's one God that, he, that you can trust. And that's what Paul says as he gets to the end of this, this section. He says, now, Timothy, because that is true, I charge you, I command you to wage good warfare. What does it mean to wage good warfare? He's talking really about gospel belief and gospel behavior. Verse 19, he talks about, uh, he says, Paul, he says, I, I entrust this to you, Timothy, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Timothy was, uh, we'll get to this a little bit later because it comes up again in Timothy, but uh, Timothy was set apart to be uh, in the ministry and Paul had done that. And there's apparently some people that had prophesied and said, Timothy's gonna be this kind of leader and here's what's gonna happen and set him apart to that ministry through the laying on of hands. And so Paul says, look, be who you called to be and who God's called you to be. And he says that by them you may wage the good warfare, verse 19, holding faith and a good conscience. That's two different sides of, of, of a coin that are inseparable. There's faith, which is right belief, a good conscience, which really drives out of right behavior. And he says that you, you need to hold both those things together. How do we wage good warfare? How do we fight the good fight? And we hold fast to the truth of who God is and live in accordance and in line with that truth in terms of our, our lifestyle and what it is that we do. Faith is really the posture of trust in God and your relationship with him. And then conscience really is that you're trusting in the decision-making and the ethical and the moral realm. You're trusting that God's ways are best for you. And so you hold those things together and they're always related. Let me... Uh, just for the sake of time, let me, let me end with this. Um, Paul goes on in the next verse and he says, by rejecting this, by rejecting sound doctrine, by rejecting a healthy faith, by rejecting good conscience and, and, and lifestyle that is in line with the gospel, he says, some have shipwrecked their faith. 
by shipwrecked, he's really using a nautical term. He's saying that when, when you don't have a true understanding of the gospel and when your lifestyle doesn't match up with the gospel, that it's disorienting for you. That, that it's actually a destabilizing of your life. And so like a ship that is meant to be stabilized by these things, whenever you don't have those things, your ship has lost its bearings and becomes overturned. And so that's why he says some people have become, uh, have, have shipwrecked their faith. And then he calls these two guys out. How'd you like to be those dudes? Like, how'd you be the, like to be the two guys that in the, the scripture that's here forever are called out and said, hey, these two guys rejected it and they shipwrecked their faith. Don't listen to those guys. They're in trouble. And then he goes on and says, whom I handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Man, that's hard, isn't it? To think about what that means and what that looks like. Let me tell you what that means. In some ways, there's a term kind of that we use in church world, some of excommunication. In some ways, it's speaking about that. It's really talking about church discipline. He's talking about that they've been pushed out of the church because Paul says that these gentlemen who were false teachers are the ones that were, uh, they were sowing evil in the church and destroying the church and causing pain within the church. Paul says, we cannot allow these teachers to continue to teach the things they're teaching within the walls of the church. They need to be pushed out of the church. In order though, here's the thing, there's hope in this. What is it? Why is, or what's the purpose that they were sent out? He says that they may learn not to blaspheme. The reason they were pushed out was so that they would learn. There's a hopefulness that's meant to be there. It's not punitive, it's actually corrective. The goal of that is restoration. And Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. He says, hey, if someone's sinning and they're refusing to turn around, go and talk with them. If they don't turn around, then man, take a buddy and go sit down with them and say, hey, man, or you're going the wrong way. Let's get you back in. He says, if that didn't happen, then bring him before the church. And if not, then he says, you have to treat them as though they, don't, they no longer belong within the church. And so when he says handed them over to Satan, what he's saying is the church is intended to be the place where we're protected, where we're taught sound doctrine that builds us up to health and strength and, and renews our life. And whenever we're not within the confines of the church and the church community that, that grows our faith, then we're out in the world, which is the realm of, uh, really the realm of Satan. And so we're kind of out on our own, fending for ourselves. And so Paul says, if they uh, if they fought against the truth of God, then you need, to, you need to protect the church by sending them out so that they might learn and come back home. Let me tell you why I know there's grace in this. What does Paul say? So that they might learn not to what? Blaspheme. Look back in um, verse 13. Paul says, though formerly I was a what? Blasphemer. So Paul's saying, look, I was that guy. And God's grace came to me. These guys are, we're, 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 we're pushing them out so that they might learn and come back. And they might trust the grace that, that Paul also trusted. And friends, let me, kind of as we, as we wrap up, let me remind us of this, just based out of what Paul said. We all, if you know God's grace, we all have a story to tell. I love that Paul went personal. He said, in the midst of this problem, let me tell you my story. Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. God's mercy overflowed for me and I came to know him. Friends, you have a story to tell. Let's tell our story. You also have worship to give. As Paul did in experiencing grace, he said, I thank God for what he's done for me and I wanna praise him and praise him for all that he's done. And so you've got, you've got a story to tell. You've got worship to give 
you also have faith to live. Um, our faith is meant to be lived. As Paul said, it's, it's both a true faith with a good conscience lived out in light of the gospel. So let's, let's live that way this week. Uh, it's interesting, Timothy's name means to honor God. Friends, let's be those who are known for honoring God. Let me pray for us. Lord, we trust your grace. We need your grace. Father, like Paul, we are all sinners. We all have fallen short. We all need your help. And yet we know because Christ Jesus has come to save sinners, that there's hope for us, that your mercy overflows, that it's not just enough to, to let us slide past or slide in, but that it overflows. It's super abundant. Father, might we rest in the abundance of your goodness and your grace to us. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.